Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, February the 14th, 2024. We're coming up on the fourth year anniversary. I'm not sure if that's the right word of the pandemic. Seems a long time ago, although most of us haven't forgotten it. Some of us got sick. Some of us did virtuous things. My guest today, Jeffrey Rosen, who is a very distinguished constitutional scholar, um, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, graduate of Yale Law School, uh, studied at Oxford, very distinguished scholar, uh, spent the pandemic years, as appropriate perhaps for his uh, scholarship, reading the works that influenced the founders of the Constitution, not the founders themselves, but the books of classical antiquity. Uh, and he has a new book out on that experience and on the books he read called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and defined America. Jeffrey Rosen is joining us uh, today. The book is just out. Congratulations, Jeffrey. Um, was this in itself, we're going to talk about virtue, but was it a, a virtuous endeavor? Did you set out during the pandemic to be virtuous, Jeffrey? No, I certainly didn't. It was an unusual project, to say the least, and it came to me rather than my seeking it out. It was a series of synchronicities or serendipities that led me to note that Ben Franklin in his famous project to achieve moral perfection in his 20s uh, had made a list of 13 virtues for daily living. And I knew about this project because I'd practiced it at the suggestion of a rabbi a few years ago who referred me to the Hasidic version. It was translated into Hebrew in the 19th century. I tried it with a friend and we found it very depressing every night to put X marks next to all the virtues where we fell short and we, we gave it up. Uh, but during the pandemic, I noticed that Franklin had chosen a motto for his project that I hadn't noticed before. And it was from Cicero's Tusculan Disputations. And it said, without virtue, happiness cannot be. A few weeks later, I was actually at uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia and at a hotel there, saw a list on the wall of 12 virtues that Thomas Jefferson had drafted for his daughters. They were remarkably similar to Franklin's. And what struck me is that Jefferson too chose as his motto, a passage from this same book that I'd never heard of, Cicero's Tusculan Disputations. And he said the essence of happiness was virtue. So basically I thought, as you said, I've had the privilege of this great education, but I'd never read these books and I felt that I should, what else to read? Well, Jefferson had a reading list that he would send out to kids who were going to law school, the friends of his and so forth, asking them how to be an educated person. And on this list, there's a section called natural religion or ethics. And it began with Cicero's Tusculan Disputations and then it included other classical moral philosophers, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, and as well as some enlightenment figures like Hutchison and, and Jean-Jacques uh, Burlamaki and, and uh, Hume. So basically during COVID, I, I set out to fill what I thought was a gap in my education. 
and I would wake up every morning and read from the moral philosophy and watch the sunrise. And what I learned changed the way I thought about the pursuit of happiness. I, I learned that for the founders and the ancients, happiness was not feeling good, but being good, not the pursuit of pleasure, but the pursuit of virtue. And that opened my eyes into a wonder of learning that inspired this book. So, uh, Jeffrey, while the scientists were aggressively pursuing um, uh, a way of inoculating us from COVID, you were doing your own, what, moral inoculation? Is huh. that one way of putting it? Uh, sure. I, I, um, inoculation or uh, tempering, uh, balancing, uh, aligning, those are all the adjectives that come to mind because so much of this moral philosophy really resonates with the wisdom of the East, uh, the Bhagavad Gita and the Dhammapada, and it basically focuses on the idea that we are what we think and life is shaped by the mind, as the Dhammapada says, and that we should focus on controlling the only thing we can control, which is our own thoughts and actions rather than the actions of others, which is the stoic dichotomy of control. So it has lots of uh, resonances with modern mindfulness and uh, emotional intelligence, we call it today, cognitive behavior therapy, but putting it into this essentially spiritual framework for me was very clarifying. Perhaps it's not surprising. Stoicism and books on Stoicism uh, are, are so much in fashion. So the book is called The Pursuit of Happiness, how classical writers on virtue inspired the lives of the founders and defined America. Everybody, of course, or I hope everybody knows, uh, Jeffrey, you educated us on the Constitution that... Um, the whole point of America is supposed to, at least according to the founders, uh, be premised on the idea of allowing us to pursue happiness. These two words, happiness and virtue, are you collapsing them? Are you suggesting that for classical writers, particularly of antiquity, uh, virtue was happiness? Yes. Aristotle has a famous definition of happiness in the Nicomachean Ethics and he calls it an activity of the soul in accordance with excellence or virtue. It's confusing because these terms are not self-defining. Virtue was further defined as temperance or moderation of mind. And the particular virtues that the ancients had in mind were the classical virtues of temperance, prudence, courage, and justice, not the, not the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So for the ancients to live a life in alignment with virtue uh, was to align yourself with the divine reason that uh, suffuses uh, the universe and that itself was happiness. Since the founders or perhaps during the, the time of the founding of America, uh, philosophers were also developing the notion of utilitarianism that we as humans seek to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. Um, much of that utilitarianism is rooted in the body. How did the, the, the classical writers that you, you read and who so influenced the founders, how did they view the idea of the body and happiness? Was it a, a stoic idea of self-control? Yes, and there are interesting and direct connections between utilitarianism and, and the earlier wisdom. Uh, Bentham took his famous formulation about the greatest pleasure for the greatest number from Francis Hutcheson, a founder of the Scottish Enlightenment, who was entirely in the classical tradition. 
the ancients debated how to achieve self-mastery because that was the ultimate goal, self-mastery, self-improvement, character improvement, being a better person. This, and, and they diverged about how to treat pleasure. The Stoics said we had to completely divorce ourselves from expectation about the reactions of others and, and basically overcome our desires uh, entirely so that we couldn't be disappointed. And the Epicureans viewed that as unrealistic and thought we should contract our desires so we could satisfy them and achieve rational pleasure. But both schools and all the classical schools are focused on of, uh, moderation, on, on avoiding undue elation uh, or exaltation, wanton exaltation, as, as Cicero called it, uh, not seeking uh, luxury or immediate gratification, but instead taking the long view. And what's really striking is that the idea of resisting immediate impulses to serve our long-term interests was the essence of the temperance that the classical people viewed as virtue and as happiness. And it just recurs in uh, the ancients, in John Locke, in the Enlightenment. And it's a version of the marshmallow test, that, that famous experiment from the 70s that um, kids who could wait for 15 minutes would get two marshmallows, those who couldn't wait would get one, and those who could wait did better later on in life. So, so much of the wisdom has to do with impulse control. Manly virtues, Jeffrey, perhaps we'll come to that a little bit later. What about the relationship between all this and civic virtue? Some critics, perhaps, of uh, later these later theories of antiquity, of uh, uh, Stoicism and Epicureanism, argued that as the Republic declined as the idea of civic virtue disappeared, pe people retreated into themselves, and particularly as Rome became anarchic, chaotic, despotic. Can the idea, and did the founders understand this, do these ideas of virtue naturally go together with civic virtue, or are they, in a sense, antithetical? It's an important question, and the founders disagreed on about it. There was a general agreement that personal self-government is necessary for political self-government. Unless we can master our own anxiety and anger and turbulence and selfishness, as individuals, we won't be able to achieve the same devotion to the public interest as, as citizens in, in a republic or a democracy. Uh, but they disagreed about how likely it was that people could achieve this en masse. The, 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 the classical view is, Spar is Sparta, Sparta, and you have to eat at common tables and practice, as you said, the, the manly virtues of self-denial and basically live a kind of militarized uh, asceticism. Uh, in, in the 18th century, Hume and the other uh, Scottish Enlightenment figures changed that and began to suggest that commerce and self-interest rightly understood could actually increase the good of the whole. And rather than totally resisting all luxuries, it was okay to live in a commercial society. The, the, the John Adams and Hamilton are more in the old Spartan view, uh, Jefferson and Madison more in the modern view. 
but they weren't sure whether people in, as a whole could achieve the education that was necessary to practice self-restraint on a broad scale. And uh, Jefferson is uh, hopeful that the University of Virginia and other places like it will diffuse education among an elite, and it was indeed an elite. Madison has hoped in a new media technology, the broadside press, used by a class he calls the literati, kind of you know Atlantic magazine journalists, will have complicated arguments like the Federalist Papers that they'll print in the newspaper and citizens will discuss them in coffee houses and reason will slowly diffuse again across the land. He's getting this from Condorcet and the French physiocrats. Adams thinks that this is just claptrap and that the people are mob-like and, and uh, unable to control themselves and you need a very strong executive in order to uh, protect virtue. So really they're not sure that the whole experiment will work out of the whole group, Madison is maybe the most cautiously optimistic because he expects less out of the system. But whether or not the people en masse are capable of virtue is, is a central question for the founders. And certainly it's important to contrast, perhaps juxtapose Jefferson, as you say, and Madison. Madison, whose influence on the constitution was profound, the idea we're, we're not angels, therefore, we need government to protect ourselves. How does that fit in? I'm guessing that that Madisonian, shall we call it, realism, um, doesn't fit that comfortably with the, the, the Jeffersonian civic Republican idealism. Yes, you, you put it well. And, and there are basically three positions that have defined all of our political and constitutional debates, uh, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison, and they're, and they're rooted in different views of human nature. Uh, Jefferson, the, the idealist, expects human perfectibility and imagines reason uh, diffusing on a broad scale. Hamilton, a, a, cons a conservative whose hero is Hume, agrees with Hume that reason is and ought to be the slave of passion and thinks you need a very strong uh, national government in order to subdue the unruly mob. He thinks the greatest threat is democracy. And Madison, always moderate and in the middle, uh, imagines that some degree of public education is possible, but puts his faith in the Constitution. And the complicated system of separation of powers and checks and balances will ensure that no one uh, branch of the federal government has all the power or that the federal government and states uh, have all the power. And maintaining this balance among the branches, Madison compares to maintaining a balance in the constitution of our minds. And it's so striking. I mean, he really is a, a, a genius in drawing this connection. He studies faculty psychology at Princeton. This is the idea that our souls have different faculties or powers with reason in the head, passion or emotion in the heart and desire in the stomach. He's getting this from Plato. And uh, the job of a constitution is to mirror the same balance uh, with uh, reason in, in a Senate and passion in a house and all checked by the executive. And, and, and the idea is that this, this balance will uh, ensure that even if men are not angels, it also, the next sentence in that famous passage says, if, if man had no virtue, then government would be impossible. He expects something, but not too much. 
and he puts most of his faith in institutions. And it's so striking that on all the big constitutional questions of the early Republic, Madison is generally right. Um, and he's just a great constitutional moderate. Jeffrey, these men were, of course, the founders were skilled in philosophy or in moral philosophy of one kind or another in thinking about virtue, but they were also, and I know you get into this in the book and in your reading, they were sophisticated historians of antiquity and of early modernity. In terms of your reading and in terms of this book, The Pursuit of Happiness, are there republics that particularly inspire or scare the founders, uh, the, the degeneration, of course, of the Athenian ideal, the shift towards authoritarianism in Rome, uh, Machiavelli. What, what, what most scared the founders? And what did they most want to emulate? It's a great question, and you, and you put it very well. What they most wanted to emulate was the apotheosis of civilization in fifth century Athens, Periclean Athens, the brief shining moment of the Greek Polis is an ideal, as is the Roman Republic during its heyday. And what they most fear is the fall of the Greek Commonwealth and the fall of Rome. And that's why both Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison are so afraid of demagogues. It's really striking. Uh, Hamilton imagines a Caesar on horseback who will come in, flatter the people, and reap the whirlwind. And we'll we can't go. imagine anyone like that, <laughs> can we, Jefferson? Well, even more uh, to the point, Jefferson, who has much more faith in democracy, has this amazing letter that I found. It's not in the book, but I, I found it um, since. Uh, it's worth noting. So Jefferson gets a copy of the Constitution from Madison, and he's reading it for the first time. And he says, there are two things I don't like. First, we need a Bill of Rights. And second, he doesn't like the fact that the president can run for re-election because he's afraid that in the distant future, a president will lose an election by a few votes, cry foul, enlist the states who voted for him, refuse to leave office and try to install himself as a Caesar-like dictator. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, and then finally, Madison is constantly talking about the mob and he's afraid of Shays' rebellion in Massachusetts where farmers refused to pay their debts and mobbed the courthouses. He says, in all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. So the whole constitution is designed to prevent mob violence, to, uh, to slow down deliberation, to stop popular assemblies from mobilizing quickly in the hope that their passion will peter out by the time that they find each other and to ensure that reason can prevail. They're so afraid of demagogues and it's really striking um, to see the degree to which our current vexations are their worst nightmare. How much did they fear events in, in at that point in their own recent history? I'm guessing they were all familiar both with Machiavelli and Hobbes. Of course, Hobbes's book, Leviathan, a direct response to the English Civil War and the crisis over the monarchy and uh, Machiavelli, who's very ambivalent in some ways, I think, about civic virtue. And of course, his books, The Prince and The Discourses, seem in some ways to disagree about the value of, of virtue. W were they fearful of the turbulence of both uh, the Renaissance, Italian Renaissance states, and of course, the experience of the English Civil War? Absolutely, deeply influenced by both of those 
examples, Machiavelli was a big influence. And in fact, um, the Virginia Declaration of Rights by George Mason, which Jefferson read, quotes Machiavelli in saying that a frequent recurrence to the virtues of temperance and prudence are necessary for the stability of a free state. That, that tradition of civic republicanism and the idea that citizens do have an obligation in their participation in politics to be virtuous, they got from Machiavelli. And the English Civil War was just central. It's the Whig tradition that Jefferson, in particular, and the Virginians were inspired by. Cato's letters is just one of the biggest influences. And in fact, the phrase, the blessings of liberty, comes from Cato's letters, Trenchard and Gordon's great essays on behalf of liberty. Uh, Trenchard and Gordon also talk about unalienable rights and the, and the right to pursue happiness. And just the basic idea for, for the Jeffersonians that there's an antithesis between liberty and power and every increase in state power will threaten liberty, which Jefferson so much got from the Whig tradition was absolutely central. Uh, and what about Hobbes? I mean, Hobbes was in some ways incredibly contemptuous of the ancients, just as Jefferson might've been inspired by the Stoics or the Epicureans. For, for Hobbes, it seems he wrote them off. He didn't think they were very relevant. Um, and he, he came up with a very different definition of, uh, of human nature. Were they familiar with Hobbes and what did they think of his arguments? You know, they, they were, I, 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 he doesn't come up in the moral philosophy. So I didn't, focus on him in the, in the pursuit of happiness. He, he's more in the political uh, philosophy and in the foundations of government. And I think that those who, uh, the Tories or the, you know, the Federalists who were really distrustful of human nature, in particular Adams and Hamilton, were influenced by Hobbes. We are speaking with Jeffrey Rosen, one of America's leading legal scholars, theorists, historians. He has a wonderful new book out, uh, The Pursuit of Happiness, an important book about what it means, at least in the Constitution, to give us the right to pursue our own, the, the pursuit of happiness, which we take, or many of us take, to spend money on Amazon or indulge our, our, our bodily lust. But according to Jeffrey Rosen, it's quite different. And these are important <laughs> themes. Uh, which are also taken up by uh, one of our great supporters, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication. Going to run a short feature on Liberties. And then we'll be back with Jeffrey to talk about what all this means for the America of 2024. So don't go away, anyone. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Jeffrey Rosen author of a wonderful new book, The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, Jeffrey, in the first half of the show, we talked about antiquity and the influence of it and classical writers on the founders of the Republic, the American Republic. Of course, we are in 2026, coming up on the 250th anniversary of the founding of the Republic. And looking back 250 years, does any of this really matter? It's all very well to have these pure fellows, men always, of course, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton. 
But does it matter in 2026? So what? Well, the first thing that really matters is to to live a good life. The, the, the far more important than the structure of government that the founders recognize is just what we all do in our own lives to try to be the best people we can and, and live as meaningful and purpose-driven a life as possible. So the, the, the moral philosophy is, I found, just tremendously uh, meaningful, uh, regardless of its effects on politics. But the effects on politics matter quite a bit because the founders really did recognize that the great precariousness of creating a, a, a democracy or a, a democratic republic and the, and the fact that it's always in danger of danger of, of, of falling. Rome and, and Greece and Napoleon and Caesar are always around the corner. And so many of the things that they feared have been amplified by uh, technology and politics, and in particular, social media is their nightmare. And in speeding up deliberation, creating direct communication between politicians and the most factionate and angry and polarized fringes of their support groups, we're, we're in the situation we have now. So it's very clarifying and very important to think about how, what kind of system of government they designed, what they were afraid of, and what we can do to avoid their nightmares. I'm sure you've heard this argument before, Jeffrey, but some people will hear you and say, well, this is all very well, but Jefferson read all these supposedly noble theorists of antiquity, and yet he owned slaves, he perhaps raped slave girls and that his own morality was profoundly uh, dark in, in many ways. And, and maybe he's not that untypical amongst that class of founders. What do you think of that critique of, of the founders? I'm sure you deal with it all the time. Every time you make a presentation, someone sticks up their hand and talks about Jefferson and slavery. It's very important. Uh, and of course, you have to confront it. What's so striking is that far from denying his hypocrisy, Jefferson and the other enslavers acknowledged it. Uh, Patrick Henry said, is it not amazing that I myself, who believe that slavery violates natural rights, that I own slaves, I won't justify it, I won't attempt to. It's just that I can't do with the inconvenience of living without slavery. It's my avarice or greed that leads me to endure it. And Jefferson said the same Thing, that he was always expecting slavery to end at some time in the distant past, but acknowledged that it was avarice or greed that led the enslavers not to give it up. Jefferson's hypocrisy was, was striking even by the standards of the enslavers, the degree of his racism in both denying his own children and also denigrating the achievements of black people wasn't shared by the other enslavers or the other founders. But far from calling into question the moral philosophy that inspired the founders in many ways looking at their own failings reinforces it it was after all uh william uh david walker the, the great abolitionist african-american who invoked jefferson's declaration to end slavery and frederick Douglass so significantly after reading the same books that inspired the founders in the Colombian orator, which he bought with bread on the streets of Baltimore, uh, called the founders to account for their own hypocrisy and insisted that their ideals of self-reliance and self-mastery were the correct ideals and that the Constitution should be read as a glorious liberty document, far from being a covenant with death that would really ensure the 
triumph of liberty for all. So it's, it's very significant that these books, far from being rejected by the opponents of slavery, galvanized and inspired them. John Quincy Adams, the, the greatest white um, abolitionist in Congress, was the, also the greatest classicist. The, these Enlightenment uh, thinkers, Christian and classical, inspired black intellectuals uh, throughout American history. They inspired Martin Luther King on the mall when he called America to account because he loved it so much. He was criticizing it for not living up to the ideals of the Declaration, which was a promissory note. And that the arc of justice bends upward. It, it, it is. Um, I was reinforced in my conviction of the centrality of these sources as glorious freedom documents in insisting on the primacy of the individual and the centrality of the American idea as embodied in the promise of the Declaration and its promise of equality and liberty and democracy. What about the gender? aspect here you know, self-reliance self-mastery some people argue especially certain schools of feminist thinking that it's a very male idea you mentioned frederick Douglass, martin luther king of course both black men um is there also a legitimate gendered critique of this noble heroic pursuit of happiness that in its own way, perhaps reflects a kind of unspoken male authoritarianism, a cult of the body, a cult of the self. Tell it to Abigail Adams, Mercy Otis Warren, and Phyllis Wheatley. All of these great women uh, had to fight to be educated in the classics because at the time their brothers were allowed to you know, go to Harvard, but they weren't supposed to have an education. But demanding that they have private tutors, and in Wheatley's case, learning along the case of her, with their ki the kids of her enslaving masters, they were inspired to defend liberty with the same power and eloquence as the men. Abigail Adams had her favorite, her famous, remember the lady's letter to John, where she insisted that we must have learned women. And Adams, although he, you know, had the prejudice of his day and was too quick and glib to dismiss it, nevertheless very much supported equal education for women. Uh, he and Abigail had an intellectual partnership that remains inspiring so many decades later. And essentially all of these women vindicated the uh, ideal that with access to the same education, uh, women and men can both uh, defend liberty and embody it uh, on equal terms. There's not, it's true that the Latin word uh, virtue, virtus, one of its meanings, in addition to self-control is manliness, but there's nothing manly about the light of reason. This is a, a civilization that is devoted to the enlightenment faith in reason. And uh, in Seneca, in fact, uh, did believe that women as well as men could align with divine reason on equal terms. And just to complete the history, those glorious women at Seneca Falls uh, insisted that women as well as men were entitled to the promises of the Declaration of Independence and their Declaration of Sentiments uh, invoked those ideals and they were classically educated as well. There's nothing gendered about freedom and equality and those are the ideals of the Enlightenment and it's inspiring, uh, I found, to see all of these great women claim these ideals as their own. 
what did the rereading of these books, or sometimes you read them for the first time of, the, 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 of, of, of classical antiquity, what did it teach you about the value of, of, your, of, of, of others, scholars, students, young people reading these books in 2024? One of the things that comes to mind in this conversation is obviously Donald Trump uh, shadows a lot of these conversations. You touched on him earlier. If we went back, for example, to the Republic, we would see at the beginning of the book this very intellectually brutal confrontation between Socrates and Thrasymachus uh, that really represents uh, uh, a, a mirrored reflection of, of what Trump would argue about virtue. In other words, Jeffrey, I'm being rather long-winded here. Um, what we're going through now in what some people at least consider the crisis of American democracy, can we find a lot of the problems and the articulation of the crisis of democracy in the texts of antiquity? Well, it's urgently important to, I found, to read these books just to be a, to be, to be a better person, to be more aligned more productive and above all more industrious. The, the, the founders fell short in many ways. We've discussed some of them, slavery and frugality and their, their avarice. But one thing they maintained until the end was their industry, the incredibly intense and productive reading and writing. Uh, it's so inspiring to see Adams and Jefferson trading letters about the Bhagavad Gita and the latest books they've read into their 80s. And I found just looking at their daily schedules and seeing how the time that they set aside for discipline, reading and writing made me more productive. I still can't believe that I wrote this book in a year after having done a year of reading. It's just, it's very inspiring to see uh, how, how much you can get done with focus. So, um, and in that sense, it's a, a great uh, supplement to the self-help literature that's so uh, available today and, and the habits of mindfulness and tranquility really are, are very empowering. But in addition to that, um, yes, indeed, it is urgently important for citizens in a democracy to read these books in order both to find the self-control that they need to vote wisely and well. That was the first thing that the founders hoped uh, deep reading and education would do. And, and also uh, to defend liberty and as our liberties may be threatened by authoritarian uh, trends in America, it's very important to hold our leaders to account the same way that the revolutionary generation did. Uh, that's why the Washington thinks that a national university is crucial to keep the Republic going, bringing together people of different backgrounds from across America to set aside their partisan differences and learn the habits of civil dialogue, of disagreeing without being disagreeable, of listening to people you disagree with. That's in some ways the greatest pathology of our politics is just the inability of people to listen to and talk with each other, to deliberate, and in some cases, to compromise the Madisonian value, but always to disagree productively. And the whole constitution is set up not to end conflict, but to manage it productively. It's a structure for productive disagreement. And that's what we're very gravely in danger of losing. And that is what reading this 
wonderful literature can help to revive. Finally, Jeffrey, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of the Republic. Um, I don't suppose we can bring any of the founders back to life to celebrate with us or perhaps mourn. Uh, but what do you think they would think of the achievements or absence of achievements of, of the American Republic? And how would it fit in with their conviction about the pursuit of happiness? Well, many might marvel that we've made it this far. Je Jefferson thought we needed a new constitution every 19 years and a new convention and indeed a, a kind of revolution. Uh, Hamilton was deeply pessimistic that people would find the virtue enough to survive. You know, Madison always, always a little bit more hopeful. For the reasons we've discussed, they'd be gravely concerned about the threats to re reason dialogue, the rise of factions, the technologies that speed up deliberation. Although Madison, sorry to jump in here, Jeff, uh, I was going to call you Jefferson, Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I, I wish, yeah. Um, we all wish. Um, Madison said faction was inevitable, so it wasn't a bad thing. It was just re re accepting truth, reality. It, exactly, but it did have to be managed to, to avoid it uh, creating disunion. And that's why the rise of the political parties, which Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton inadvertently presided over, did prove to be a way of managing conflict and also assembling uh, multi-partisan coalitions of interests for a long time in American history for, for reasons that have been undermined more recently. But, uh, you know, it, it was never clear that the system was going to survive. It, it was, Madison thought it was also a miracle that the first convention had succeeded, which is why he never wanted a second. We've been extraordinarily lucky in many ways, despite our great conflicts over American history, that we have it. We've, we've only had one civil war, and uh, let's pray that we'll avoid another.